The title of my message today is Crushing Wrath and Tender Mercy. This is part of a series we're going to do this year called Full Counsel. In Acts chapter 20, Paul said, I I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, all of God's word is fair game. And what we're doing is we're looking at some, we'll just call them obscure books. Some books that probably aren't taught so often. I've selected seven to study with you this year that I've never, ever preached from on a Sunday morning. I think I've taught through several of these in classes and Sunday school and whatnot, but I've never taught through these books or taught from these books on a Sunday morning. So last week we looked at Obadiah. Today we're going to start a three-week study in the book of Nahum. And Nahum's an interesting book. There's, the circumstances are wildly different from ours. And, and the application is less tangible than some of the teaching we find in other parts of the scripture. And so probably for that reason, a lot of preachers just kind of avoid it. But if God's word is inspired by God and meant to correct and bless, then we need to study every part of it at some point in our lives. So what I want to do is, um, before we get get into this book, just kind of get you thinking a little bit, and not to like try to dredge up negative memories or past experiences that you'd rather forget, but can you think of times in your life when you messed up royally, when you sinned, you did something that you're ashamed of? You think of some things like that? Like, man, I, I wish I had not lived that day. I wish I had not said that, done that, made that decision. Can you kind of think of a few things? But keep those in mind over here. And then over here, can you think of some times when people messed you up? When people committed some sort of an injustice against you, betrayed your confidence, gossiped about you, spread false rumors about you, tarnished other relationships. Can you think of some times when you were the victim? So over here, you were the victimizer. You, you did things, you said things that were dishonoring to God. Can you think of some times like that in your life? And secondly, can you think of some times when you were the one committing sinful acts against God? I'm sure all of us can. Nahum addresses both of those things. Nahum addresses the need for us to live our lives in repentance. And Nahum also addresses the fact that God will vindicate all the wrongdoing that has been committed against his people. There was kind of a two-pronged message here. In repentance, we're going to be called to make right the wrongs that we have committed against God. And as we consider God's justice, we're going to be blessed by being reminded that God will make right the wrongs that have been committed against us. So spoiler alert, Nahum is largely about a call to repentance and reminders of God's justice against all and every sin. And so this book has a message for both the offender and the offended. So that means it has a message for me. And if your life is anything like mine, it has a message for you. Three principles I want to explore today. I've sinned, now what? What do I do? What mindset do I need to adopt? What posture do I need to embrace 
when I've sinned against God or when people have sinned against me. So three principles to live by. We're going to find the first one in the first three verses. I'm going to read it for you, make some comments, and then arrive at a conclusion. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So it's identifying the recipients, the Ninevites, and the writer. And then largely the rest of the chapter is crafted in the form of a psalm or a song about and to and from God. So we learn things about God. There's words of praise given to God. And then we receive a word from God. Here it goes. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord makes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. By the way, whenever you see repetition in God's word, you're supposed to like lean in and kind of, okay, I think there's something for me here. So we have the word avenging, avenging, vengeance, and wrath. That's a theme. God wants to tell you something. He doesn't want you to miss it. So he repeats the theme over and over again. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means, that's emphatic, no means, he will by no means what? He will by no means clear the guilty. By no means. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are like the dust of his feet. If you've ever flown and you've flown over the clouds, like they're pretty big. They're covering a lot of territory. But this psalm pictures those as like the dust that is stirred up as God walks across the universe. The little plumes of dust, very small compared to him, are much like the clouds and even the whirlwind. So we start off with... We don't even have to guess what the purpose of Nahum is. It tells us. This is an oracle. This is a word of judgment against Nineveh. Who's Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Remember Jonah? Jonah, probably writing maybe 100 years before Nahum, was called by God to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. Now, just to kind of give you a little bit of an idea about Nineveh, Nineveh at the time that Nahum was writing was the biggest city on earth. Mega city. There was all kinds of people that lived there. And it was the capital city of the kingdom of Assyria, which at the time of Nahum was the global superpower. What would be the next one? Babylon, but not yet. Right now, Assyria is still essentially ruling the known world. And the Assyrians had come down into Israel, northern Israel, that is, where the ten upper tribes lived. And they had waged war against the Israelites. And after several years of war, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, not Jerusalem, that's the Judean capital, but Samaria finally fell. The walls came down. It finally fell to the Assyrian 
King Sargon. Now, sometime later, in 612, so this is after 722, because we're moving through BC now, and after Nahum's prophecy, the Assyrian kingdom collapsed in 612 BC. So why this is kind of important is because when we're reading Nahum and we're listening to what God says will happen to Nineveh, we now know because we're living on the other side of the collapse of Nineveh that God actually did what he said he was going to do. This is yet one more of many examples of fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. When God says something's going to happen, you can bet your last dollar it will happen. And God prophesied through Nahum that Assyria would eventually bite the dust. And in fact, they did bite the dust. But prior to that, prior to that collapse, Assyria was living large. They had conquered all kinds of kingdoms right down into Egypt. And one of the kings that, kingdoms that they had captured was Israel. Now, this is an interesting thing. This is probably going to unsettle some of you, get you thinking about this a little bit. If, you, if you're familiar with your Bible, in the book of Isaiah, God actually spoke against the people of Israel. And he's like, you know what? You're supposed to be the people of God. You know me. I've blessed you. And you just continue to sin. Sick of it. You've offended my holiness. You've violated my ways. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to send the Assyrians in to conquer you. And lo and behold, they did. One of the mysteries of God's ways is that God uses evildoers to punish and correct his people. And then he punishes evildoers for punishing and correcting his people. That's how God operates. So you could say, well, why would God punish the Ninevites? He's the one that sovereignly orchestrated their capture of northern Israel. Well, he did. You could say he fanned into flame their sin and their rebellion to an even greater degree to stimulate them to go and capture Israel. But because of their ruthlessness and their heavy handedness, God's heart was stirred by the plight of his people. And now he pronounces judgment on the very people he sent to judge his people. This is part of the mysterious ways of God. God uses evildoers to correct those whom he loves. And then God brings vindication to those whom he loves by punishing evildoers. You can think about that a little bit. I can't explain to you the specific reasons why, but I know that that is a biblical reality for us to consider and embrace by faith. The Ninevites are called, look at the language of the text, God's adversaries. I'm seeing that word. And they're also called God's enemies. But here's what you need to know about God and God's punishment. God is not a spaz. God is not unplanned or reactionary in his judgment. God doesn't get all worked up when evil is doing its evil deeds. God, in the midst of 
this attack always has poise. He's still in control. He's still in charge. Look at the text says. It says he's slow to anger. So God is perfect in his wrath. God is perfect in his justice, but he's slow to anger. And yet at the same time, when his power is poured out, it's terrifying. It's described as like a whirlwind, like a storm. I've never been in a whirlwind or a massive storm, but just you know, a couple weeks ago out of the house, probably a hundred branches of various lengths and sizes are like all over our property because that whirlwindy thing, whatever it was, came through and shook the house and shook all these trees and there was just deadfall everywhere. And it's kind of unsettling. You realize how small you are when you're in the middle of a storm. And that's just a small storm compared to the storm that God is going to bring upon the Ninevites. So here's the first principle that we see in this text. An unrepentant past will catch up to you. The Ninevites had gotten away with it for a period of time. God saw it. God assessed it. But God is slow to anger. But it also tells us that he's not going to let them get away with it. An unrepentant past will eventually catch up to all evildoers. That's the principle. One of the principles of verses 1 to 3. Just because you got away with it before doesn't mean you'll continue to. Nineveh was powerful. And here's the thing, just so you can assess your own life. With power comes the assumption of invincibility, does it not? Like, I'm, I'm strong. I'm in charge. I'm in control. And when you think you're invincible, it's so easy just to fall into self-governance. We call this autonomy. Autonomy doesn't mean to be by yourself. It comes from two words, autos, self, namas, law. It literally means self-law. I am a ruler unto myself. The powerful person who thinks they can do whatever they want begins to convince themselves that they're invincible. That leads to autonomy, and it just kind of feeds itself. You don't need God. Nineveh didn't need God. It had all the resources, military might, and money that it could possibly want. But God's like, I still see. I've assessed. I'm slow to anger, but you're not going to get away with this forever. I can guarantee you that. Again, the circumstances are wildly different than ours. But on the level of principle or implication, we could perhaps consider in our own lives some of the reasons why we may choose to live in a state of rebellion against God. Maybe some lies that have taken up residence in our minds include the lie, well, I won't get caught. I won't get caught, so I'm going to continue to sin. I'm going to continue to live in rebellion against God because I won't get caught. Or the sister lie to that is I can't get caught. No one's going to find out. Or perhaps another lie would be, I just don't care what others think. I was talking to a believer recently and challenging them and confronting them about some sin in their lives. It's like, I just really don't care. You have caused to question the authenticity of your faith now. 
But their idea was, I just, I just don't, like I know it. I know it's a sin. I'm not denying it's a sin, but I, I just really don't care. That's a scary place to be. God hasn't judged me so far. So maybe he's dealing with other things. Well, here's what the Bible says in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord, what's the next word? Is it the word might? No, it's the word will. It's definitive. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He will give no guilty person a pass. So lesson number one, an unrepentant past will catch up to you. The Ninevites were unrepentant. They were living in sin and God's like, I'm going to catch up to you. I'm going to catch up to you. So don't fall into the same pattern of behavior that they fell into. If there's unconfessed sin in your life, or if you're not a believer, you're living in rebellion against God, you need to know this authority, God's word. God will by no means clear the guilty. He's not going to assess you at the end of your life and say, well, you weren't as bad as the person sitting next to you. If you're guilty, you're guilty. And the justice of God will ensure and does ensure that you will pay for the things you have done in this body. But there's another lesson for us to be had. Read with me, starting with verse four. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. That's kind of a powerful thing to be able to do dry out a sea. He dries up all the rivers, more power language. Bashan, that's a whole region, kind of to the northeast of the the, uh, Sea of Galilee. And Carmel wither. The bloom of Babylon withers. The mountains, those are pretty big, they quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. So the power of God is being declared through these two verses. Then some responsive stuff. Who can stand before his indignation? Like, can anybody endure God's wrath? Nope. Who can endure the heat of his anger? Nobody. His wrath is poured out like a fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. These verses in this psalm speak of the absolute power of God over everything, which when we worship him is so refreshing, but when we rebel against him is so frightening. Same attribute, different implications, depending on whether you're living in rebellion or obedience to God. God here is the king He's the unequivocal king. He's all-powerful. Again, many of the Mesopotamian kings, Sargon, Sennacherib, others that would follow him, them, this is actually one of their titles. They would call themselves the king of kings and the lord of lords. And the biblical writers borrow that language, probably from the broader culture, and apply it to God. And now we sing it in our songs, that we think of God as the King of kings and the Lord Lord of lords all the time, and he is. But the, the, the language was likely borrowed from the secular 
rebellious realm where these arrogant, pompous global rulers thought all power and authority rested with them. Sargon, the initial king to invade, obviously thought that his accomplishments proved the fact that he was all-powerful. Nobody, nobody could touch him, touch him. Nobody could take him down. And this is the lie that successful sins continue to promote in our lives. You know, sometimes you know, sin actually pays dividends in the here and now. There are ways of getting rich by sinning. There are ways of gaining power and fame and fortune by sinning. Just rip other people off and cheating and war, injustice. Sin can pay big dollars. You can get promotions at work by sinning. There's ways and means of doing that. Verses 4 to 6 are intended to portray God's sovereignty over it all. Listening to this message being spoken, obviously that the primary recipients were not the Ninevites. So it wasn't like Nahum delivered this letter to Nineveh. I don't even know if Nineveh ever saw it. But the letter was delivered primarily to the people of God in Israel who were subjugated by them to bring hope and healing. And so in the middle of this discussion about God's power, the writer shifts to words of application and we are introduced to the tender mercies of God. It shines through. Verse 7 then reads, The Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So while he is powerful and he is speaking of his desire to pour out judgment upon evildoers, he also has this little refrain where he wants to offer those that love him and follow him some hope. My grandmother lived through World War II. She was born in Sheffield, England. She used to tell us when we were very small about times when bombs would be dropping on their city as German warplanes went over. And all the family would run down into the basement, you know, get under a table or something like that. Her house was never hit, but she did tell us about a house at the end of their street that was hit. And it was hit so fast and so hard that there was a little boy. He must have been playing in a boxing position, maybe playing with his brother or sister or an imaginary opponent. When the bomb dropped, literally it just took the life out of him. And so when the rescuers dug through the rubble, they literally found this dead child standing up in a boxing position. This is the kind of horror that she was exposed to as a young girl. But for her, getting into the basement was like a stronghold. It was a safe place. Anything above ground, not safe. Below ground, much more safe. Sometimes when we build buildings, we we include tornado shelters. If we ever have a tornado sweep through our area on a Sunday morning, I should tell you if you go down the hallway, the two bathrooms at the end of the hallway are actually designated as tornado shelters. Those are strongholds. That's the place you want to be. The idea of a stronghold is what? Security. Safety. That's where you want to be when things are unraveling. And God as he pronounces words of pending judgment and wrath, says, hey, to those that love me, you know where you want to be when I start to pour out this kind of wrath? You want to be with me. 
You want to find refuge and strength, find it in me. So we have these words of hope that remind us of the fact that while wrathful, God also desires at the same time, this is verses four to seven, to dispense grace. While wrathful, God also desires to dispense grace, but he will not dispense grace to those that continue to rebel against him. Grace is available for those that have surrendered themselves to his kingship. He offers to be your stronghold. By the way, is he? Is he the one to whom you run when life gets a little challenging? Who do you run to first when life's tough? There's nothing wrong with being blessed by the presence of other people. Maybe talking to someone who's especially skilled in offering counsel. But the first place for us to go when life is a challenge is to our stronghold, who is God. And it's in his presence that we are protected and ultimately healed. And then we have a third lesson, verse 8 and following. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. Very definitive language, a complete end. And will pursue his enemies into darkness. Question. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. In other words, his judgment will be so definitive. There'll be no second opportunity to strike back against God. Speaking of his adversaries, he says, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried, all, all language of uselessness. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Who's he thinking of? By the time that Nahum was writing, Sargon had died. His son, Sennacherib, had become the king. He was responsible for sacking for defeating 47 walled cities in Samaria and northern Israel. By ancient standards, folks, that is an incredible feat to be able to knock down 47 walled cities. Some of these cities would take months just to get into them. You have to starve the people out. Credible military victory by a human perspective. And yet God refers to him as a worthless counselor, a worthless counselor that plotted against the Lord. That's found in verse nine, that plotted against the Lord. That's found again in verse 11 to this plotter, to this evil man. The Bible says, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more speaking to his people. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. Because many of them had been taken into captivity into Assyria and other places. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. That almost seems like if you have a very 
lopsided view of God. It almost seems like something that shouldn't be in the Bible. But that's because you have a lopsided view of God. God is both loving, but he's also vengeful. And God says to this king, I, I will make your grave. I will dig your grave for you are vile. That's a strong word. When was the last time you said to someone, you're vile? Very strong word. You would reserve that for extreme circumstances. These are extreme circumstances. God's like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to end your life. I'm going to destroy your carved images. I'm going to cut your name off, all your descendants. And God declares these words to the king of Assyria because as the representative leader of a nation that was living in rebellion against God, he brought guilt upon all of his people. God's like, I'm going to pull down your whole kingdom and your dynasty. So guess what? Fulfilled prophecy. Let me tell you this. Sennacherib was murdered when he went home. In a very sad way. Guess who took Sennacherib's life? Two of his sons snuck up on him and stabbed him to death. How, how would you like to go down that way? The people that you brought into the world, your children, take your life. They then fled. And his third son took over the kingdom. Another son was sent off to rule a more obscure place called Babylonia. But within a few generations, Babylon would rise and Assyria would fall. God says it's going to happen in Nahum. And again, we know now because we know a little bit about human history that it actually happened. And within a few generations, Assyria was essentially no more. God is harsh. He is direct and he is clear. Because his sins, the sins that people had committed against him were harsh, direct, and clear. So this word plot, this is a powerful word. You might say, yeah, but maybe the king of Assyria didn't know better. Well, it's true. On on one hand, he's ignorant. But on the other hand, every sin is, in essence, a plot against God. You may not be as conscious of it as someone else who is biblically informed, But sin in and of its essence is a plot against God. And this plotter, God essentially teaches us, like, don't don't try to outmaneuver God. Don't try to outsmart God. Because at the end of the day, you're going to lose. Don't try to outsmart God. You're going to lose. Plot is mentioned twice. Worthless counselor is mentioned twice. Each of these remind us of the futility of trying to outsmart God. So think about your own life, by the way. Is it possible that there's times in your life when you're kind of trying to outsmart God? And you may not think of it in that bold of language, but you're trying to play games a little bit. Your, your spirituality is false, it's fake, or it's hypocritical, or you're playing mind games, you're trying to excuse yourself. There's extreme examples of this from human history, and there's more subtle examples of this from human history. Obviously, we have some extremists out there, you know, the atheists that try to create intellectual arguments to disprove God. And what, what always makes me curious about hardcore atheists that spend so much time and energy trying to dis- disprove God is the basic question, why do you care? 
Why are you so hell-bent on trying to disprove God if at the end of the day it just doesn't really matter? The fact that you're so concerned about disproving God demonstrates something about you. You could say to an atheist, now you may not believe in God, but we don't believe in atheists. Because in your heart, you know God's moral law is written on your heart. You're made in the image and likeness of God. You know you are created and that there is a creator. And this is why you're driven to try to disprove the existence of God because it's convicting you of your own sin and unrighteousness. There's the politicians. We see this increasingly. The plotters. Call them politicians. They're plotters. So many of them that twist truth, even shamefully appealing to Christian virtues like love. (laughs) The greatest virtue of all. Think about this. Appealing to love to validate, we'll just use a Bible word, vileness. That's not love. That's sin. Taking that which is morally wrong and trying to make it morally right by appealing to love. There's the accuser, both believers and unbelievers alike, who are maybe going through some pain, who assume they know how to govern the world better than God, and so they live their whole lives why did you do this, God? Why did you allow that? Why didn't you permit this? Blah, 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 blah. Just accusing God. Oh, you know how to govern the world better than God? It's very human and natural to ask God questions. But most often, when we ask God questions that have anything to do with his plan or governance, it's a sin. And it's just kind of a little leakage taking place in our lives. We're we're kind of leaking through. We're we're revealing something that's inside of us that may remain hidden. But the, the basic notion that we can govern things better than God is a fundamental lie. Then there's the poser who displays spirituality, rich spirituality, deep spirituality. But it's only an inch deep, if that. They're... How are they plotting against God? They're, they're faking it. They're trying to present themselves in a way that's inauthentic and inaccurate. There's the attention seeker that robs glory from God to shine light on their own accomplishments. Look, we're pretty creative in subtle ways and in not so subtle ways. We can plot. We can think about and deliberate about how we, how we can steal from God glory, honor, majesty, power, through our questions, through our sins, through our tactics. Don't be one of those people. God says of this plotter, I will make your grave. (laughs) I will take you down. Don't mess with me. I'll win. Verse 15 says, behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news. So here we have the second hope-filled Words of blessing to the people of God in this psalm. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. So speaking to the southern kingdom that had not yet been captured. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So this speaks of God's hope and blessing upon his people when his people choose to walk in obedience to his holy commandments. 
Justice and renewal are being communicated there. Justice and renewal of unhindered worship for the people of God. So, here's our takeaways. Number one, we need to listen to the warnings that God levied against Nineveh. Again, it's directed towards unbelievers, and most of you are believers. But words of judgment against unbelievers... And just kind of do a little assessment and quench and repent of any rebellion that may exist in our lives. The reminder is, we won't get away with it. God sees everything. God knows exactly what you're thinking right now. He knows exactly what you're feeling right now. He knows what you did last week, be it good or bad. He, he knows everything. You can't fake it with God. So live your life as best as you can in humble authenticity. When you sin, just admit it. And seek to live your life with short accounts before the Lord. And the second one is, if you've been attacked, if you've been treated in an unjust way, just wait. God may be slow by human standards, but God will vindicate those whom he loves. He really will. God will catch up to those people that have trashed your reputation, that have sinned against you, that have abused you, that have misused you. God will, God will deal with that. He really will. And so listen and wait. That's the essential message. Listen to the words of warning and wait for words of vindication, which I would suggest to you is the essence of the whole Christian life. So much of our lives boil down to those two simple Actions, listening and waiting, listening and waiting. Both of them require faith. They don't require perfection, but they require faith. We listen to what God has said. We keep short accounts with the Lord. And then we wait for the Lord to bring vindication to those whom he loves. So may you be encouraged by these ancient words as you apply them to your life starting today. <laughs> 